We're walking uh, down 99th Street. Yeah. Not uh, not often you can walk from a coffee shop like we were just at to an archaeological dig site. That that's true. No, this is a a rare uh, opportunity for everyone. Not that it it looks as exciting as you might all think of when you think of an archaeological site. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, Edmonton's Historian Laureate, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta. Each episode, I find people with questions about local history, and then we find out the answers together. This episode, The Ravine Reveal. I and a bunch of folks from Bunny Dune asked what archaeologist Hayden Stewart is digging up in Mill Creek Ravine. He's been doing real archaeology right here in our city. I followed him down to the dig site itself. And along the way, we learned about a neighborhood you might not have known ever existed, and how Edmonton industrialized in the early 20th century. Right now we are walking along the old EYNP Railroad, Edmonton, Yukon and Pacific Railroad. Which is now a nice like dog walking and biking Which path. Which is exactly a beautiful biking path. The question for this episode is, uh, what is Hayden Stewart digging up okay. in Mill Creek Ravine? Because um, I have heard lots of people really curious about um, what you've been digging up. Yeah. And um, the Bonnie Dune Community League invited you to give a little talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to include some of the questions that people from the Community League had for you. Um, but we're also walking down to the dig site itself um, that you're working on. So would you mind explaining who the heck are you and, and what are you doing? Okay. Uh, my name is Hayden Stewart. I'm a PhD student at the University of Chicago, and I'm in sort of smack dab in the middle of doing my field work, uh, which will eventually become my dissertation. And my project is looking at the early 20th century Edmonton, specifically looking at the processes of industrialization and how that affected the more marginal communities of Edmonton. So uh, looking at a a shantytown community that was built up uh, starting around 1902, 1903, and lasted until the 50s, and looking at how the drastic changes over that period affected a community that was really living on the edges of Edmonton society. It was a very poor community. and sort of trying to track some of those changes over time. When you say industrialization, we're talking about people going into like factory work, manufacturing work. Yeah, exactly. So the it really starts, and the sort of the beginning moment for me is when this rail line comes in, and that uh, is the first time Edmonton gets connected to uh, basically the rest of Canada and the, the rail lines of the rest of Canada. Um, like there had been rail lines to Strathcona before, but it was the first one that crossed the river. And that really set up the city to boom as a manufacturing center for the province and uh, just as a major manufacturing center in the rest of Western Canada. And you see, you know, people coming into the area, workers coming into the area. It becomes a major uh, labor center. It becomes a major center for meatpacking, for like just this... Mill Creek Ravine itself had 
uh, multiple large coal mines, it had the rail line, it had a brick factory, it had at one point three uh, meat packing plants on it. So all of a sudden you have this period where everything starts popping up as um, manufacturing, processing, uh, all the kind of, all the resources from the rest of the province get sucked into Edmonton and get processed. You could learn about that by digging up people's old homes down in Mill Creek Ravine? Yes, you can because one of the, well, there's two major things, or there are many major things that shift, but two that you can get archaeologically uh, and that I'm looking at is it drastically changes what everyday person can purchase, what they live on, going from an economy where they're relying on a lot of stuff they have to procure themselves or they're, you know, based on their farm or the garden or whatever to one in which you can buy lots more things you can um, you know you're making there's more money to go around because there are more jobs so you can buy more things all this kind of if things are way cheaper also because it's manufacturing it gets more streamlined um, but at the same time they're also this industrialization drastically changes the landscape right it so Mill Creek goes from being a very sort of pastoral uh, ravine to being an industrial center. That's all the trees get uh, knocked down for a period. It gets kind of the grass gets shorn. There's uh, coal mines and meatpacking plants pumping their uh, refuse into the creek. Everyone's using it as a dump. And there's this community of around 150 people living right at the very end of it. We're talking about Mill Creek Ravine, which today people think of as like that nice place that you jog down yeah. sort of near the Mutar Conservatory on the south side of the river. Exactly. That sort of perfect uh, little piece of nature in the midst of your urban jungle that used to be a sort of industrial heartland. Huh. Okay, so the question today is, what is Hayden Stewart digging up in Mill Creek Ravine? Um, let's, so let's, let's find, find out. out. Let's find out. <laughs> so Hayden had a question. What was Edmonton like for people in the early 20th century when they were first moving into manufacturing jobs? And he had an approach in mind, learning about their lives by digging through the remains of the homes in Mill Creek Ravine and the debris of the lives they left behind. But then, how do you figure out where to dig? You can't excavate the whole ravine. Well, the city made maps of this area back in the 20s and the 40s because people were living here semi-illegally, not connected to the power or water grids, and the city was concerned about outbreaks of cholera and tuberculosis. So Hayden started by comparing those to maps from today. And then, interestingly, he started doing test digs in places where there wasn't much of anything growing. We're in sort of an open area with, there's actually a picnic table ahead, but still some trees. Yeah, and we're not maybe two minutes away from the culvert where Mill Creek Ravine sort of ends right now and runs underground until it goes into the river. It runs in a metal channel to it the river. It runs in a metal channel. And so what we have, so if you imagine like 100 years ago, the creek would have still been going like right along there. The rail line would have been going right along there. And we're kind of at the southern limit of where the community I'm looking at, the community of Ross Acreage, would have been. So you have from here to Connors Road, you have half of the houses and then on the other side of Connors Road you have the other half half of the houses and as you get further and further south there uh, more and more kind of the 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 poor community is living so 
closer to Connors Road, you have the wealthier members of Ross Acreage, so and the houses are a little bit, a little bit, you know, spiffier. Further south, you have people are getting closer to living right next to the mines, living right next to the brick factory, and they're much more uh, ramshackly. So poorer members of the community are living out here. So this is, we're coming uh, upon two of my old units, which... It looks to me like we're looking at patches of dirt and grass. Yeah. Well, we did a pretty, we did a good job of covering them up, I guess. This is intentional that it, it looks is, this yeah, way. Yeah, we, we don't want it to look like, you know, we dug two really deep holes in the ground and sort of left them. Oh. So they will grow, they're like, it's a little patchy, but even then, if you see around it, there's not much, uh, uh, the grass originally wasn't great here. And that's something that you can tell from the site here and the just a little up the hill where we had our other units, is that both areas, one of the telling signs that there was something here was that the vegetation wasn't actually doing very well. Uh, and so that's attributable. I haven't run all my tests yet, but attributable, I think, a lot to the fact that there's so much coal, they're burning so much coal here, and they're leaving so much of their coal ash around. That's actually quite hard for uh, uh, a lot of species to live in that kind of soil. Another clue to where the old homes were? Overgrown shrubs. You look for things like this. So you have caragana, which is an old plant, which I'm sure everybody knows. And it's it, it kind of looks like a tall bush. Yeah, a tall bush, and it looks kind of... It's got little pea pods on it. Um, yellow flowers. Yellow flowers, yeah. And you have... It's often a very good indicator of historical... Uh, pioneer settler cabin sort of stuff because they plant it everywhere. It was actually promoted by the Canadian government as like a windbreak. So they would send it out for free to anyone who wanted and you could go around planting it. Um, and so it's actually a really good indicator in the ravine. And if you walk around the ravine, you know there's caragana everywhere of where uh, it maps on really nicely to the old maps I have of where people were living. Uh, and once I saw this, it and did a few STPs, this became the area that I really focused the whole my whole summer on. All right, okay, well, well let's talk about one of the sites okay. that you were... So right here, and we have up there, and we can talk about this one or this one, whichever you want. You want to it doesn't really one matter. you haven't seen yet? Sure. Okay, we're walking up the hill. Yeah, this is the main, this is where I spent most of my time. We're walking uh, uphill from that caragana bush that we were looking at. This is just, it, what it looks like now is sort of a... A bit of exposed ground with leaves all over it. Yeah, and some, it looks like it hasn't settled much, but it has been doing like some weird, I guess, freezing, warping a bit. Um, and we had two units back there. So all, we have five units here. And uh, what's a unit? A unit, so that's like, basically it's a, a hole in the ground. Um, most of them are one meter by one meter holes in the ground. And we have one here that was a two meter by one meter hole in the ground. And basically, you uh, string it up, you string out the outline of it, and you just dig down in layers. But are we talking shovels? No. Uh, trowels. Like little hand little trowels. Hand trowels. Like this one right here, we're standing on. So these are the corners of it. And 
goes to here, and we also had another one right here. It's a one meter by one meter. He's marking the meter with his with his shoes, which is and, great. Um, so this one, we went down uh, over a meter and a half. So we had, and it took us, we probably started this one late July, and this one wasn't finished until, probably took us like a month and a half almost to get this one. What were you finding as you were going down? So here we have, uh, like, the surrounding units, we're just finding uh, material. So we're finding levels with lots of um, nails in them, lots of ceramic in them, lots of old glass in them. Here we're actually finding... Um, our this is a slightly bigger where, site yeah, we're, we're standing we're on? focusing on. This was the sort of where we have our large unit and our other unit right next to it. Um, we're finding architecture and uh, evidence of structures and some kind of built area. So we clearly have here, we had um, maybe a meter, not quite a meter down, maybe 80 centimeters down. We have uh, an old post hole with still a bit of uh, wood in it. Um, and we have clear floor levels. So there is some kind of living platform built here probably started off with some kind of canvas tent and then built some kind of maybe one room structure something like that with one of its corners around here spread out here probably taking up most of this area um, and next to it here we had uh, a hole dug into the ground that was then lined with on the bottom and on the sides with uh, planks so you're actually finding planks yeah we found planks we didn't find all of them but we had uh, a couple that were perfectly that were clearly lining uh, horizontally and you have a couple that were lining vertically what was the day like on site when somebody first realized that they dug in like dug down to a plank i mean that was pretty cool that was it was just me and uh, my first friend who actually came out from chicago so it, was, it wasn't like a you know it wasn't like bring everyone over here when i did find the post hole that was there was a lot of people on site then i was like i got everyone to come in i was like check out my post hole um but yeah when we were finding the planks that was great because it was also right beneath or right next to a whole bunch of really nice old glass bottles and stuff like that so there's a whole bunch of stuff coming up in situ at the same time and it was my first unit too so it was all it was like because whenever you you know, you do all this work of surveying and you do all this work of being pretty sure you know where things are going to be. And with STPs, you can you bring up stuff, but you still have no idea what's actually going to be down there. And so my first unit coming down on it and there was stuff there and it was like it wasn't just stuff. It was stuff in context and it was in sort of it had architectural uh, significance and it, you know, you could make a really nice story about it that it was then I knew that, you know, the summer wouldn't be a bust. So that was, it was a great moment for me. I was very happy. Was uh, this like validation of like oh, your whole archeological study path? To absolutely. It? Right. Cause it's, it's like, it's the first time you can be on a lot of projects and, you know, help out with people, but you're never the one making the calls. And so there's, you never know how your instincts are going to be, you know, it's like, cause sometimes you're like, Oh, we should dig over there. We should dig over there. There's a lot of moving parts that can go wrong and if I decided to you know start over there as opposed to starting over here who knows how the summer would have gone so um you you painted a picture of uh, of a pretty small 
but basically like what today we would call like slum housing kind of yeah. um what do we know what what can we know about the people who lived in that kind of place you're talking about like a one room yeah, shack yeah that's that's what it looks like we are finding um i mean it's hard to say exactly who was living here and there's lots of archival stuff that still needs to be done to figure out you know if there are family names we can associate with it uh but based on talking to people and based on what we're finding uh like the material suggests that these are families living here so we're finding stuff from women and we're finding stuff from kids as well as the sort of traditional stuff uh, you find from shanties which are normally associated with uh sort of men on the outskirts of society kind of thing this is they're clearly women living here they're clearly kids living here um and then from talking to people uh it seems like there's a lot of or there are the community was had metis families living here had uh first nations families living here and then a lot of people from uh Great Britain, from Eastern Europe, that kind of thing. So the very, the mix of people that was very common to be on the outskirts of society from in this period. So early incoming settlers and First Nation groups. When you say there were clearly women and children here, what, what says that to you clearly about what you were finding at these sites? So finding bits of like buttons and clothes and beads and things like that, that seem to be that one would normally associate with women's clothes. Uh, as well as uh, kids' toys we're finding. So um, little things like the most obvious was uh, um, a small saucer, a toy saucer from a toy set that was found in one of the levels, as well as a couple other things that seemed to pretty clearly be like little figurines, um, uh, little doll, pieces of dolls, that kind of thing that suggests there are kids around. Um you found a, a button from the Great West Garment Company like oh, yeah. jeans, right? A couple of those. So down in this unit, we had um, what looked like uh, suspender buckle buttons or something like that from two of them from GWG jeans. So that was pretty cool. Jeans that were manufactured right here right in Edmonton. Here in Edmonton, started in 1911. Uh, so that was, and that were targeted at the sort of working class population. So that was a really nice sort of, really tied it down to an Edmonton-specific kind of working-class history, which was nice. Huh. Okay, uh, do you mind if we uh, look at the other site, yeah, too? And we walked downhill to the other site, and Hayden said that one interesting about this site was that there were multiple levels with evidence people had lived there over the years. Uh, what we're finding is, in each one of these levels, we're having uh, the uh, a flooding event that's sort of capping them off. So... We're right here. We're right next to where the stream would have been uh, going. We're really close to where the pond is now, which is just part of the drainage of the old ravine, uh, the old creek. And the creek, as people probably know, is really prone to flooding. And once it becomes a major industrial center and a major outflow for the rest of Strathcona, that uh, susceptibility to flooding just gets worse and worse. And people who are living down here and this is most of the people who are in Ross Acre which are living really close to the creek are going to be flooded out all the time and this is something you can tell by this guy this living uh, shanty was getting flooded out all the time um, which you know is bad enough on good days but when that 
flooding water is filled with meatpacking waste, it gets, you know, one can only imagine how disgusting it was to clean up from after that. There were meatpacking plants upstream. Upstream. So Gaynor's and Vogel's were, were well, Vogel's was uh, in business until like 1917, 1918, 1919. Uh, and Gaynor's was in business until the 70s, processing up there. And not just all the meat effluent but you're also getting like gainers is always burning down or having fires and washing all of its like preservatives into the the creek whenever you know because you have to get the firemen to put out the fire with a mass load of water and it all just sort of slumps into the creek and so they're huge ammonia piles and stuff like that just get uh washed away into the ravine and washed away into the creek and then you have the community of ross acreage whose, you know, livelihood is still really based in the area, right? They're still hunting in the ravine. They're still trapping squirrels and rabbits and stuff like that. So even as the ecology is really taking a hit and the environment is taking a hit, uh, people still need to rely on it for their livelihood in a lot of cases. So it's that sort of tension that I'm really interested in. When you come to a site like this, with a little bit of knowledge yeah. about the conditions that people lived in. Yeah. Um, like in this case, knowing that there might have been uh, uh, some polluted runoff mm -hmm. from the meatpacking plant washing into people's homes. That definitely like creates a story for you, a picture in your head of, of, of what you're going to find. So how do you keep that story from um, blinding you yeah, or overwhelming you to what you're actually finding? Absolutely. I think that's a really good question. And I mean... It's it's a little give and take because the materials you're you're finding are never going to give you the story. You have to provide the story, and you just have to be honest with the stuff you're finding. So you allow. What I like to think of it is, you start building a story, and you start with your archival stuff, with your maps, and then you allow the material to speak against them. So like you're open to the material, whatever you're finding, and you can find things that totally disprove what you're saying and you can and then you have to give up on whatever that narrative was right and at this point I'm still like nothing I found disprove or the stuff I found suggests a certain narrative but as I analyze my soil as I do more uh, analysis on the material I'm actually finding those narratives are constantly shifting around like there are things I think are from one period and then I look and it's like, oh no, this is made from the 40s. So the level I was looking at that I thought was from the 20s, it's really probably has to be from the 40s or the 50s. And that I constantly have to change the kind of the small details of it. And that's what I'm looking at right now, the kind of the nitty gritty small details of what was happening. And then I have to take those small details and build a story out of it. So what I'm giving you is, yeah, a very sort of nice broad brush story that it, by the time all the analysis is done, both the soil analysis and the material analysis, it will totally be different. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, last thing I'll say here before we go into the Q&A from the okay. audience at the right. Biodate Community League is um, the, the broad brush picture of this whole community is that it, um, it, it, it was demolished, made to, made, yeah. made to be abandoned in yeah. the 1950s yeah. by the city of Edmonton? Yeah, so when... Uh, the city wanted to expand Connors Road. Uh, 
they cleared out the whole area and most of the area needed to be cleared out for Connors Road. This area, not so much, but it was a long-standing sort of thorn in the side of the city. And there was a whole bunch of rules, actually from the 30s on, people weren't really supposed to be building down here and a whole bunch of stuff. So the city kind of took the opportunity to come in, clear it all out, and they actually like covered the whole area. They flattened, like, as you see right now, the area is quite flat. It used to be, uh, actually were quite a bit higher than it used to be. It was a much more, uh, uh, quite a lower surface getting down to the, uh, uh, the creek. And, but there, so there's like a layer, the city put down a layer of like this much sand everywhere. Like a foot? Yeah, like a foot of sand. Yeah. So you find that everywhere. All the STPs out here, there, you dig through a bit of top soil and, uh, maybe a bit of like rubbly stuff. And then you hit a whole bunch of sterile sand and then under it, you're finding the stuff I'm looking for. Huh. Oh. Yeah. Um, STP, remind me, uh, shovel, shovel, test pit. shovel test pit. Shovel test pit. Yeah. The other part I would like to talk about, or to say that and this is only the first part of the project. So the other part of the project, this is the part of looking at um, sort of working class marginal communities at home. And the next part that we're doing next summer will be up the ravine uh, at around 88th Avenue, which we'll be looking at sort of industrial life at work. So we'll be excavating uh, an old meatpacking plant from the early 20th century. So that's a sort of the next part of this project, and that should be pretty exciting. And people will be able to volunteer to help you on site? I, yeah, I think so. There we're having, uh, like we had volunteers this summer, and we'll probably get volunteers next summer. We have to figure it out because we'll also be getting a bunch of McCune students to come out and help us out. So we'll be running a field school, and we'll also... Yeah, would love to have people come down and give us a hand. You are not from Edmonton. From Vancouver. Vancouver originally. How on earth did you get interested in these questions? Um, I guess it all started around 10 years ago. So my mom moved to Edmonton, moved to Argyle. And uh, it was also around the time I was starting my undergrad. Yeah, that's true. And it... Uh, kind of the Mill Creek Ravine became part of one of a backyard area for when I was whenever I was staying at her house and so as I was walking down it uh, you'd see stuff coming out of the bank you'd see old industrial like train carts and big meat hooks and all the kind of stuff that you can see associated with the old Gainers meatpacking plant uh, south of White Ave and that really piqued my interest, and when I came, when it came time for me to need to have a dissertation project, my interest was always on Western Canada and the history of Western Canada, uh, and sort of the contact period, mainly sort of 19th century. Um, I just sort of went a little bit further in time and became started figuring out, uh, doing some research on this sort of early 20th century period of Edmonton, which I started finding really really interesting. Cool. All right. Thanks, Hayden. Thank you so much, Chris. All right, so this next part of the podcast is a snippet from a live talk that Hayden Stewart did at the Bonnie Dune Community League in November 2016. Full disclosure, they provided me with an honorarium to record the event. Now, the lecture that Hayden gave summarized a lot of what he showed me in the ravine, but there were so many slides, it was hard to translate to the podcast. Instead, I'm going to play you some selections from the Q&A after his talk. 
There was a great crowd of people from the neighborhood and lots of folks who were just interested in archaeology. Anything that I missed, if there was anything that wasn't super clear. I'm just wondering what kind of hazards um, there are in digging up uh, what seems, you know, from my perspective, to be relatively recent um, human like waste and human dumps, all that kind of thing. And what precautions do you guys take during the dig to uh, protect yourselves from all? What the, well, I guess whatever potential is there, if there is any. Right. I mean, there are, there's definitely, and this was something my when I came to my committee and was defending my proposal. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to find evidence of, like, pollution and stuff like that. I want to find that, like, to see how we can reconstruct how polluted this creek was. And they're like, yeah, but are you not going to be polluting yourself when you're going through all this stuff? Um, I, the stuff we're finding, it, it, like, we had, all the stuff has soil test on to it, and there is nothing is, like, uh, harmful to the body. And it's, the other thing I was worried about is that, to actually excavate the stuff, you're bringing it back up. So maybe you're disturbing stuff and bringing it to the surface. Um, we didn't find any evidence of concentration strong enough for that to be an issue. Uh, but there definitely does seem to be uh, a continued impact of some of these places. Like a lot of the stuff when I was surveying, a thing to look for, or one of the things I became, uh, began looking for, was areas that were really um, barren. So both Shanty 1 and Shanty 2 had area, basically had nothing growing on them, uh, certain areas of them. There was definitely stuff growing around them, but they were quite clear areas. And um, most of that is because of the really high acidity. Even like the Caragana didn't like the, the stuff that had lots of coal left over. So there's big mounds of coal ash under the ground, and there's not much stuff growing on top of them. Um, but all of that goes right back in the hole. So I don't believe we caused any issues there, but we weren't being harmed while we were digging. If that answers your question, yeah. This is kind of related. I'm just curious about all the meat packing plants. Um, it, they must be um, exporting because there's no way that early Edmonton could have ingested all that meat. No, no, absolutely. They are, and it's, uh, so Edmonton is really the manufacturing hub, and it's really why the railway becomes necessary. It becomes a manufacturing hub. All the cow, cattle, and pigs and stuff come into the city, and then they leave. So Vogels is only around for um, 15 years or so, but it's, our, it's exporting to... Uh, BC, it's exporting to the rest of Alberta, and it's exporting uh, all the way to the east as well. So even this, and this is you know 1910, 1912, they're starting ex really pumping out for all different places, and that's Gallagher Hulls was the biggest for a long time. It was exporting massively, and I mean this is that's just Strathcona ones, or that's just Mill Creek ones. There's a couple more in Strathcona, and then there's all the big ones in the north too. So there's a massive there's a whole, in this period, there's a whole bunch of meatpacking plants everywhere in Emmett. Um, do you know why the meatpacking plants left Edmonton? I mean, it's, to say they left, it's not, it's, 
around the 20s, there was a really big shift in the industry. Um, and so it's not like it's, they changed um, how the business was organized, really. So at a certain point, you can make really good money just selling meat. And then at a, as, uh, you know, markets get better integra integrated, uh, American meat becomes easier to get, all this sort of stuff. Um, Meatpacking plants need to become much higher scale volume in order to become profitable. So you stop making any profits off of meat and you can make only profits off of the bones and all the other stuff that comes with meatpacking that you have to sell off. And you can really only make a profit by selling that off in massive, massive scales. Um, and so the small scale meatpacking or medium scale meatpacking that you see with Gallagher Hulls and Vogels um, they don't have the capital that's needed to ramp up production. And Gainers does. Gainers becomes by the 30s from you know, 20, 30, 40 workers to 200, 300 workers. Uh, Vogels and Gallagher Halls shut down. And that happens in the north side also. You have a lot of, there's a whole bunch of medium-sized meatpacking plants. They get outcompeted by the uh, plants that are willing to go huge scale and so you have I mean in Gainers is functioning until the seven like this Gainers is functioning to the 70s you have Gainers on the outside of the city that's uh, functioning and they're still meatpacking in Edmonton today in uh, Swifts and stuff like that that are still going on but they're all it's really the transformation from uh, a really downtown localized people industry is or where is where people are and then at some point industry leaves where people are and goes on the outskirts and then people live in the city and work out uh, to the outskirts of the city. That makes sense. Could you share a little bit about what ended the Shantytown era, why they moved out and when they did? Um, Ross Acreage specifically lasted a lot longer than uh, other Shantytowns. So you have something like Grierson, which really becomes a quite big and famous, uh, it gets a lot of media attention during the Great Depression, um, and is there eventually kicked out once the dump stops being the dump and is sort of uh, um, plastered over and made into the park that it is today. Um, Ross Acreage is let for 50 years, basically it doesn't get kicked, people don't get kicked out until um, after 54, so 55, 56, as the uh, Connors Road um, construction is being done. And the city for a really long time doesn't like or has a very um, fraught relationship with most of the shanty towns. Um, they are being paid a very nominal ground rent from Ross Acreage, but they're also constantly sending um, doctors and engineers to determine uh, they're worried about health effects basically of people living down because they're not on the water grid for a long time they're not on the electricity grid they are worried about tuberculosis and cholera and all the kind of stuff that the city is worried about festering in an area that they don't have much control over and is doesn't have great sanitation um, and so they buy the late 20s they um, outlaw any new building but there's they don't have much of a way of actually controlling that or stopping people from building because 
the homes that are there, especially the homes on the south side of the uh, the road, are pretty minimal. They're sort of shacks. Whereas on the, the north side, there's a little more stable, um, what you'd think of as like a early 20th century wooden house. Whereas on the south side, they're a little more ramshackled. Hi, um, I don't know if you're aware of the city's exploring daylighting Mill Creek to the river. And so I'm curious in terms of your research, what you would be excited or expected to find between that point and the river itself, if they were to go ahead. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the whole daylighting thing, it would be very interesting for me. I'm not sure the if they really followed the original route of the river, I imagine most of the context would be really disturbed just because it's going to be unearthing what was fill. So I'm not sure archaeologically uh, what stuff could be determined from it. Although, um, and based on my est the shovel test I was doing, as one gets further and further, we're closer to the old creek bed, like the real creek bed, um, it's just, it's really a mess of stuff. Um, so I would be very interested to see what it would look like, but I'm not sure what it would strictly tell you um, archaeologically, but it would still be very interesting. And I mean, in general, there's a bunch of stuff uh, to do with Mill Creek in the present day that's very interesting to me as just part of uh, the general history of the ravine um, and that it's, like it's coming full circle really like the daylighting is the uh is just part of the process the early processes that started in this period that i'm talking about and it's trying to sort of come back to uh, a pre-industrial uh, ravine and uh daylighting as well as a lot of the interest that seems to be uh going on with water quality and uh, flooding concerns and these are concerns that are I'm very interested in, in present day because there are also concerns that it would have been big deals back in the period that I'm looking at too. So looking at how there are a lot of things that have been changing in Mill Creek Ravine, but a lot of things that sort of are staying the same and a lot of the things that I'm looking at in 100 years ago are still having large ramifications in the present right now. So, Can I throw in a question? Absolutely. Um, uh, what can you tell about the indigenous history of this area? And would you have to just dig like two feet further to get to that? Um, I no, I don't think that if you did, we, we would find stuff. Not because people weren't there, just because of the way that um, sort of archaeological material. It's actually a lot harder to find than you know. It would be really nice if just everywhere there was stuff if you dig down. But because my survey. Um, protocol was so specifically targeting these places, if I'd been targeting the indigenous uh, communities that were living down there, so Papa's Chase uh, and early Cree uh, communities, it would have just been a different survey method. So I would have been looking at, um, looking for different places. And we didn't find any, uh, like one of the, the Shanty One area actually did seem uh, to be a place that could have had people living there, but we went down two meters and there was nothing, so. And not that there weren't people living there, it just wasn't right the right spot. 
there's a lot of land and there's not many, not much space covered by a one by one meter. So. <laughs> Um, so if you were to find um, human remains down at these like higher levels, yeah. um, what would the process be? Would, is, there, is there a difference between a uh, thousand or 10,000 year old uh, human remains and something that might only be a hundred years old? It doesn't matter what kind of, like how old it appears, the, you have to call the cops always when you find a body. So that, and I even, I, I talked to the city, um, Indigenous outreach group and talk to the you know archaeological branch and everyone. It's you know doesn't matter what it is. You got to call the cops, even if it's clearly like you know got a a, a projectile point in its neck or something like that. It's still got to call the cops. Make sure it wasn't a, a murder. So. And then after that, if it you know um, if they once their process is done. You go through, um, you know, community outreach, trying to figure out whose body it was, uh, how old it was, get the local indigenous community involved, that sort of thing. I want to thank Hayden and Chris for coming out and for doing the presentation and the, the podcast. Uh, that was that was great. It's neat to know what's going on. Um, we'll look for you next year, yeah. right? We we look for a tarp. Yeah, exactly. And what could you use, like a glass of lemonade on a hot day, or or a a definitely, definitely bring lemonade. lemonade. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Let's uh, give it up for Hayden and Chris. And Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. I love hearing what you guys think of the show, and I want your questions about Edmonton history. Drop me a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can listen to the rest of the episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and letsfindoutpodcast.com. Thank you to Hayden Stewart for letting me traipse down into Mill Creek Ravine with him. Thanks to the folks at the Bonnie Dune Community League for inviting me to record Hayden's talk. They are currently working on a book celebrating the 100th anniversary of Bonnie Dune. If you have stories, photographs, posters, or newspaper clippings to share about the neighborhood, please get in touch with Margaret Russell. Her email address is history at bonniedune.ca. I'll post that info on the website. Thanks to everybody who came out for letting me record their questions at the Q&A with the Bonnie Dune Community League. Thank you to the Edmonton Historical Board and the Edmonton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast and to everyone who's been supporting it, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>